0: Welcome to Faith, Sermons and Studies with Pastor Joe DeVitro. I want to thank uh, Pastor Joe and the deacons here. It's always a privilege to be able to come up and speak uh, a message uh, in his place. He does, I don't think they realize how important and how grateful I am to be able to uh, give a message uh, out of the God's Word. And uh, this morning, if you would turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10, Luke chapter 10. And thank you, Lisa, for reading this morning. I just, uh, yesterday, I just had remembered that we needed someone to read. And I sent Charlie a a text, and Lisa responded. So so, uh, thank you for that. Luke chapter 10, we're going to start at verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered, and he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself to Jesus and who is my neighbor, he said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus answered him, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down the road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levi, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side also. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him, and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, Gave them to the innkeeper, and he said to him, Take care of him, and whatever you, more you spend, when I come again, I will repay. So, which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, He who showed mercy on him. And then Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. I know that you've heard this story many, many, many times. And you're wondering, why would I have to bring a message of the same story you've reiterated all your lives? But it was when I was reading through this story that many things came to mind. This is not just a message of who your neighbor is. It's also a salvation message. When we get to the end, you're going to find out how that actually relates to salvation. Let's go a little bit deeper in this. This certain man fell prey to the robbers of this world. These robbers are Satan's followers. They strip you of your dignity. They steal your wealth. They injure you with the wounds that are hard to heal. The world is not kind, and it's full of evil, waiting to find its next victim. 1 Peter 5, 8, 9 says, The Bible says, Satan goes about like a roaring lion, seeking to whom it may devour. Now let's look at the first person that came. There's actually four people, actually a little bit more you got the lawyer you've got the priest you got the levite you got the samaritan and you got a certain man and the one the other ones i missed in here is you've got the innkeeper so there's six individuals in this one parable let's look at the first one the priest representing the religions of the world look at the man decided he has no value he's dead he looked at him and says i can't do anything for him he offered nothing to him in his current condition. He just passed by. He was too busy to stop and help. Religion cannot save this man. This man needed saving. Whether it be physical or whether it be spiritual, he needed to be saved. Religion comes along, passes by on the other side, says you're of no value to me. I can't do anything for you. Religion cannot save him. You see, religion has nothing lasting to give you. But if you follow a lot of the religions, they're going to take a lot from you and not going to give you anything in return. So don't think yourself as Christianity as being a religion. It's not. It's a belief in Jesus Christ as our Savior. And we follow him, being Christ-like, means we're followers of Christ. Let's look at some of these other religions of the world, Because the religions of the world, they place you in an individual status, don't they? They want you to do it, what Christ has done for us. Let's look at Buddhism. Buddhists do not worship any gods or the true God. People outside of Buddhism I often think that they worship the Buddha. But that's not true. They don't worship the Buddha. And the Buddha himself... He never said that he was divinity, or that he was God. What he says is, I want to reach a spot in my life where I can have an enlightenment. Most of the Eastern religions teach that, enlightenment. They want to be enlightened, spiritually enlightened, physically enlightened. They want their conscience to be stirred. But it's not stirred through Jesus Christ. It's stirred through their own religion. Let's go to Hinduism. The Hindus worship one being called Brahma, and through infinite representation of gods and goddesses. If you look at the temples in Hinduism, what do you see? A whole lot of different gods and goddesses adorning all of their temples. That religion couldn't save this man, this man needed saving. He needed physical and spiritual saving. This religion, Hinduism, couldn't save him. Let's go to Islam. The Muslims believe there is one almighty God named Allah who is infinitely superior and transcendent from humankind. Allah is viewed as the creator of the universe and the source of all good and all evil. Everything that happens is Allah's will. He is powerful and a strict judge who will mercifully be merciful toward followers depending on the sufficiency of their work. Look at the crescent and the star. Years ago, that crescent and the star used to mean something under Islam. It's changed today. They don't want to actually say that they were reference to the moon god and the sun god. But that's what it was referenced years ago. And so Islam cannot save you because they don't worship the same God we do. If you ask a Muslim about Jesus Christ, you say, yeah, I know Jesus Christ. He's actually mentioned in the Quran, But he's mentioned as a prophet. And if you ask them if Jesus Christ was the son of God, what are they going to say? They say, no. God didn't have any sons. And so if you say that God doesn't have any sons and you don't believe in the Son of God, where's your eternal destiny? Islam doesn't have anything to save this man. This man needed salvation. and we go, Now we move on to Rome and Catholicism. Rome teaches that salvation is by grace. They teach about Jesus Christ. They teach about his death on the cross, they teach about his resurrection, they teach about his ascension into heaven. Rome teaches that, but it's not by grace alone. It's by grace and something else. As you can see in here, there's Cardinal Santos Sartos who became the Pope Highest the was that the tenth? He says, I have read all the homilies I have made since my coming here in Venice. And only in the sermon for the anniversary of the election of the Holy Father I said these exact words. The Pope represents Jesus Christ himself and therefore is a loving father. Does the Pope really represent Jesus Christ himself? I don't think so. And in 1302, Pope Boniface said that this in his letter. Furthermore, we declare, we proclaim, we define that it's absolutely necessary for salvation that every human creature be subject to the Roman pontiff. Wow. Are they putting themselves on the same level as Jesus Christ? Is that possible? Can you be on the same level as Jesus Christ? Are you sinless? Is this guy a man? And they're so close. So close. They teach about Christ. They read his word. I've been a Catholic since when I was, till I was 20 years old. And we left after that. And so I know all the sacraments. Baptism, confirmation, communion, the Eucharist. All the things that they do, all the spiritual things that they do to try and attain some type of work that would come alongside the belief in Christ saved by grace. And it doesn't happen. Catholicism is usually called a plus religion. It teaches that you are saved by faith plus works, by grace plus merit, by Christ plus other mediators, according to scripture plus tradition. And then they glorify Mary and the saints. Are those saints that they talk about in Catholicism any different than you as a saint for Jesus Christ when you accept him? No. What makes a saint? Jesus Christ. Believing in him, you become a child of God, you become a saint. It says in Revelations that the saints are the souls of the saints are under the altar, those that had been beheaded for believing in Christ. It says that we are saints. Religion being man-made has corrupted the world by making many unbiblical requirements for true salvation. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace have you been saved through faith. What does that mean? For by grace, the grace of God, the mercy of Christ, you've been saved. By faith means that you believe that. I believe that grace alone Christ alone is all I need to be saved. I don't need any mediators. We need no idols to worship. I worship Jesus Christ. First Thessalonians 1.9 says, For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's who we serve, the living and true God. At one point in time, we served idols. If we were in any of these religions that we had before, we're serving idols. We're either putting ourselves as a deity, we're putting ourselves as being God as the old lie that Satan taught us or, or presented against Eve in the Garden of Eden, that you can be like God. Nor do I need any person to carry my prayers to God. I don't need to pray to a priest, to a bishop. To a Pope. The Holy Spirit utters my prayers to Christ. First Peter 3.12 says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayers. Nice to know, isn't it, that God's ears are open to us? That he hears us when we call him? Call upon the Lord. And I don't need a mediator between God and me. I don't need a priest. I don't need a pope. I don't need an idol. I don't need anything to be a mediator between me and my God. Jesus Christ is the only mediator. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man and the man, Christ, Jesus. He's the mediator. He's the one we come to and go to when we have troubles. And he's the one that God looks through when he looks upon us. He's in between. And that's why God can see sin, doesn't look upon sin, because the mediator stands between us and God. And he sees him full of righteousness, full of holiness, unblameless. He has nothing, no sin. And he sees Christ, his son, and he looks at us that we've been washed. Now this priest was in a, saw this man in desperation. He was in need of physical and possibly spiritual Help. But religion cannot provide the physical or the spiritual. When man and his religion think that they come to God with their tradition and rituals, they fail. Because Jesus has come to us through his work on the cross. Not of anything that we have done. And now we come to the Levi. The the Levites are different people. They've been selected and elected by Moses way back when. And the Levites represent the law. The priest represents religion. The Levites now represent the law. The Levites, the law was given to keep the people in line, keep them straight on the narrow path, knowing right and wrong. The Levites were the keepers of the law. They were teachers of the law. They made certain that you followed the law. They were judges. They served in the temple. They served as temple guards and the treasuries and the monies. There were temple police. The Levites were instructed by Moses to take care of the articles in the temple. Whenever the Ark of the Covenant was moved in the Old Testament, the Levites were the ones who tore down the tents, put it all together. They carried the Ark. They moved it to the new place. They were supposed to be resting. And then they set the tents back up and they put all the articles back in to the temple. That was their job. And this Levi came along, and he looked, and he passed by on the other side, the same as the priest. Why? Well, part of the law says that in those days, they couldn't touch a dead body because it would defile them. And so they couldn't go into the temple for 14 days, and they had to stand out of the temple, and they had to put in alms, and they had to say prayers, and they had to make sure that they were cleansed. And so this man probably looked at him and said he thought he was dead because the Bible said he was half dead. He was naked. And he said, I'm not going to touch him. So his excuse was, the law says I can't touch him. And he moved on. And the law says that you cannot be saved. This man couldn't be saved by the law, could he? What does it say? Romans 3.20 Therefore by the deeds of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight for by the law is the knowledge of sin. That's what the law brings to you and me is the knowledge that there is sin and what sin is. Doesn't bring salvation. The law gives us knowledge of sin but it does not save because the law points out our sin that we need a savior. One who shed his blood for the forgiveness of yours and my sin. We need only one who is holy, righteous, all powerful, full of glory and might. Someone who can pull us from the ditch that we've been thrown into, or maybe the ditch that we crawled into because of our decision making. We need somebody a person. That person is Jesus Christ. That's who we need. We don't need religion, we don't need the law. We need Jesus Christ. And now we come to the Samaritans. Samaritans were relatives of the Jews in a sense that they were offspring because they married Gentiles. They were Jewish people who married Gentiles. And the Jews really hated the Samaritans in the Old Testament days. I don't believe that's today, but in the Old Testament days they did. And they hated them because they thought that they had polluted the heritage of God's chosen people by marrying Gentiles. And a matter of fact, if you go and look at the book of Nehemiah, it's all about Samaritans trying to offer to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, but Nehemiah told them, go away. I want nothing to do with you. And by doing so, what did he do? He created a very great army of enemies. And they they plotted against Nehemiah. And that's why those who were building the wall had to carry the sword in one hand and build with the other. Some years ago, an experiment was conducted with some seminary students. The researchers gathered a group of ministry students in a classroom and told them each had this assignment. Their assignment was to write down the parable of the Good Samaritan, interpret its meaning and put a message together. And then they said, well, you can't do that in this classroom. All the information you need is across the campus in another building, and you got one hour to get it done. And they took off. Well, unbeknownst to them, did they know that these... Professors had put a stumbling block in their way, and they put an actor out there as this certain man, and he laid on the ground, and he had wounds, and he played sick, and they wanted to see how many of these people, how many of these students would stop when they saw this, and nobody stopped. As a matter of fact, they stepped over him on their way to get a, demes- a message to put together about the good Samaritan. And so they were real good Samaritans, weren't they? And it goes to show you that, you know, nobody tries to be like the priest and the Levite. It's just something that's in our nature. It's just something that we will do. So this Samaritan now... He comes to the man, and I put the Samaritan as representing Christ. And the reason I put him as representing Christ, because if we're going to look at what does the Samaritan do compared to what Christ does for us. Let's put it in that context. This man had fallen prey to evil. He was in a desperate situation. Bible said he was half dead. He was beaten. With wounds and naked. He was thrown aside in the ditch. He was filled with despair. And notice how Jesus phrases this at the beginning. He says, He's a certain man. Notice that he doesn't say an Asian man, a black man, a Jewish man. He doesn't say that. He says, A certain man. Why would Jesus say a certain man? Because Jesus wants you to be included. Everybody in this world that is created in the image of God would be included in this as being that certain man. This could happen to you, whether you're a man or a woman. And he wants to be everything inclusive. Because Jesus is talking to the world here. Even though he's talking to this lawyer, everybody's listening. You know that Jesus, wherever he went, had a crowd he wasn't usually just talking to an individual. And so we, you, the world, become inclusive as a certain man. And it says a Samaritan came close and he had compassion on him. Notice that the priest and the Levite, the religious, the law, there was no compassion there. Just rules regulations, rituals, tradition. There was no compassion for the man. And it says the Samaritan, this Jesus, had compassion on him. He didn't pass by on the other side. He came to him. Does Christ come to us? God calls us. Christ stands at the door and knocks. He's coming to us. He's asking that we open that door asking that we answer the call. And this Jesus, the Samaritan, came to him. What a wonderful God we serve, a God with compassion. Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize. Did I pronounce that right? Sympathize with our weakness. What does that mean, sympathize? It means having compassion on our weakness. He knows our weaknesses. He knows what's happening in our lives. And then he comes to us with sympathy because he knows it's happened to him when he was alive, how people treated him. Jesus has compassion for you. Matthew 15, 30, 32, he says, Now Jesus called his disciples to himself, and he says, I have compassion on the multitude. There was a multitude of people that had been following Jesus for three days, and they hadn't eaten. And he says, I got compassion on them. I feel sorry for them. They haven't had any food for three days. I want to feed them. Mark 1, 41. Verse 40, it talks about a leper. And the leper says to Jesus, if it be your will, you can heal me. Do we have faith like that? That leper knew who Jesus was. And what faith did he have? To say, if it be your will, you would heal me. And Jesus said, moved with compassion. He stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I am willing, be cleansed. What a God we serve. A loving, compassionate God. Luke 7, 12 through 14, is the same thing. A man, a dead man was being carried out and he was the only son of his mother. And she was a widow And a large crowd from the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And he said to her, do not weep. And then he came and touched the open coffin. And those who carried him stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. What do we get from the compassion of God? The compassion of Christ. He fed thousands of people. He healed thousands of people. He actually rose and gave life to the dead. Do we realize that's what we get when we come to Jesus Christ? That's what he gives us? Isn't this probably what happened to some of us? We were in the valley of despair, the valley of death, hopeless, helpless in desperation, not knowing what to do, how to handle the situation, where to turn, afraid, beaten down, broken hearts. Some of us probably wishing the end of the world would come. We couldn't take any more. And then Jesus appears. Somebody comes to you, witnesses to you about the life that Jesus can give you. The only way you get eternal life is through Jesus Christ. No other way, no other religion, no other law. And he gives you that life. And he comes to you, knocking at the door. Will you answer? First Peter says five seven that casting all your cares on him, for he cares for you. That's his compassion. He cares for us. God loves us. God loves you. We recite John three sixteen almost every Sunday. God so loved the world. He had compassion on this world so much that he gave his son. How many of us would give our son for this world? Not many. I don't think I would. Then Jesus, or the Samaritan, he leans over and pours wine on your wound. This man is lying in the ditch, naked, open wounds, been beaten. He's half alive. The Samaritan, as Jesus comes and he takes wine, and he pours it on his wound. Why would you pour wine on a wound? Wine has alcohol in it, doesn't it? It's an antiseptic. It cleanses, it cleans, and so he's cleaning the wounds. What does Jesus do to our wounds? John 1 John 1.7 says that but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, he ha- we have fellowship with him. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from our sins. Look at your wounds as being sins. They hurt. You have broken hearts. Broken lives. Everything is broken because of sin. Sin never fixes anything. You can't throw a grenade into a, what do they call it, a garbage can or a garbage lot and have something come out of it that's whole. It blows up everything. That's what sin does, destroys the destroyer. But Christ comes and cleanses with his blood, his shed blood on that cross, cleanses our wounds, cleanses our sins, forgives our sins, cleanses our soul, makes us whole again. James 5.14 says, If any of you among you is sick, I'm a little bit ahead of myself. Jesus then comes and pours oil on your wounds. <clears throat> so first he pours wine. He's got to cleanse you. Isn't that the first step to salvation? Repent of your sins. Cleanse. Be cleansed through the blood of Jesus Christ. And then it says here that he poured oil on his wounds. Why would you put oil on your wounds? There's a, I don't know Lisa would know what it is, there's a, a plant that you can squeeze the, what's it called? Aloe vera plant. That's oil. What does it do when you put it on a burn? I've used it many times, because I'm an idiot that comes to burning and welding. and I'll go in and I'll, take that plant and I'll put it on there and it cools it. It actually heals it. It soothes it, It takes the pain away. And so after cleansing, if you put alcohol in an open wound, what do you think it's going to do? Burns. It hurts. And now he's going to take oil and he puts it on that open wound. He covers it, soothes it, tries to take the pain away. It covers it so that you don't have any more bacteria. It doesn't get dirty anymore. Who does the oil represent in the Bible? Holy Spirit. And so now we have Christ's blood cleansing us. And then He sends His Holy Spirit to heal us, to be the Comforter, to guide us, to remembrance, the understanding. God is always giving. God never takes. He always gives. Now, James 5.14, if anyone among you is sick, let him call the elders of the church. Let him pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. The Holy Spirit. Mark 6.13, it says, and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. This was the disciples and Jesus anointed them with oil and he healed them. The Bible doesn't say if he clothed this man. It just says that from that point when he put the oil on and he dressed his wounds and cleansed him, that he put him on his beast. But I think the Bible I think we can assume that he put some clothes on him. I don't think this man would throw him on a beast naked and bring him into a town where there's an inn and he would be naked. Embarrassed and ashamed. So I believe that he, my belief, is that he did clothe him. And that's what Jesus does to us. He clothes us with his righteousness. And so we've been cleansed. We've been healed. And now we've been clothed with his righteousness, that we no longer ashamed and be afraid. Romans 4.11 says, And he received the sign of circumcision, a, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. His righteousness, that imputed, that means that it's on account he said he took his righteousness, it's like we have a bank account, a savings account, and he took that righteousness and put it into our account. And it's a never-ending account. It's not one you can go in overdraft on. It goes forever. And when we sin, after we accept Jesus Christ, we can go to that account and ask for forgiveness, and that righteousness is still there. It doesn't go away. It's Christ's righteousness. The credit is unlimited. In Revelations 3.18, let's go to Revelations 3.18 quickly here. He's talking to the church of Laodicea in here, and he's saying, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed. What is this white garments that you can buy from God? It says righteousness. It's on our account. It's given to us. We can have it. And just as Jesus talking here, buy from me white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. He doesn't want us to be shown as being naked. Naked in our sins. He wants us covered in his righteousness. Then he puts him on a beast and he carries him to a place to rest. This man who was in the ditch after he bandaged him up, put him on this beast, carries him to a place of rest. Isn't that what Christ does for us? How many of us have been in that situation downtrodden no hope no place to go don't know what to do and Christ lifts us up out of that ditch lifts us up out of that despair and carries us and gives us rest the comforter the Holy Spirit and so it says that he stayed with him at the inn all night overnight overnight Christ doesn't ever leave us or forsake us. He's with us from the day that we accept him for eternity, past, present and beyond. He's going to be there, never going to be gone, out of our sight again. to be with us. And it says this Samaritan this Jesus stayed with him overnight and then at the end, in the morning, he gave money to the innkeeper. I paid the price. Here's the price for taking care of this man while I'm gone. When I return, if there's any extra, I'll repay you. That's your account. It never goes empty. He paid the price. Who's the innkeeper? The innkeeper is you and me. After accepting Jesus Christ, what are we supposed to do? Witness to other people. And when we witness them, do we just leave them lay? No. We want to bring them up. Bring them up in the words of Christianity. We want to follow up on them. How are you doing? What do you need? you need any help? Anything I can do for you? I'll teach you the word as God has taught it to me or others have taught it to me. We can get into the word and we can continue on. That's the innkeeper. That's us. And when they accept Jesus Christ, we know that the price was paid once and for all. For that person as it was paid for us 1 Corinthians six twenty says for you were bought at a price and 1 Corinthians seven twenty three says you were bought at a price it was a big price it was the death of Jesus Christ our Lord and our Savior was paid by him you're no longer a servant to the evil one you're no longer bound to sin, but now a servant to the Holy One, a bond servant, serving freely the King of Kings and Lord of Lords Jesus Christ. Jesus is always giving. What does religion give you? What does the law give you? Does religion give you life? Does the law give you life? Does the religion give you peace? No. God's always giving something, isn't he? Not just his son. He gives us other things. But remember, why do you think Jesus used a Samaritan in this parable? Outsider. John seven seven says, The world hated cannot hate you, but it hates me. Because I testify of that its works are evil. John 15, 18 says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Did the Jews like the Samaritans? And who was he talking to? The Jews. And the guy was asking, who is my neighbor? Could it be that this person that I hate, this person that I despise, because they corrupted the children of God, because of they don't believe in God because of this is that person really my neighbor when he talked when Jesus had this parable he didn't talk about the guy in the ditch as being the neighbor the samaritan was the neighbor and the neighbor did something for the guy in the ditch because he had compassion for that person Jesus was hated. The Jews hated him. They plotted to kill him. Matthew 26.4 says that many times they take Jesus by trickery and wanted to kill him. Remember the lawyer at the beginning of the parable says, good master. Did somebody else ever call Jesus good? The rich little ruler did. Matthew 19.16, he says, now behold, one came and said to him, good teacher, What good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Well, he even says the same question. What good thing shall I do? Here they are, Jews that know the Torah, they know the word of God, they know the Messiah's coming, and what do they ask for? What good thing should I do? Both of them. Is there a good thing you can do to have eternal life? What does the Bible say? No one is good, not one. What does the Bible say? All have fallen short, the glory of God, because we're sinners. Is there any one good thing that you could do to have eternal life? Why does this uh, ruler call Jesus good? Do you think that he believes that this Jesus is God? What does Jesus respond? He says, no one is good but one. God, I believe he understood that Jesus was God but didn't want to believe in his heart that he was and so if Jesus is God and he is good and nobody else is good the only way to eternal life is through Christ that's the one good thing <laughs> the only one good thing It's Christ Himself to give us eternal life. Luke 4 18 says, The Spirit, this is Jesus speaking, it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recover of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. A few things in this verse that we want to look at real quickly. Recovery of sight to the blind. Does this mean a physical recovery of a blind person? Or does this mean that the scales have been moved removed from your eyes so that you can finally see the truth? And the same with liberty. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. This liberty. When he sets you free, the Bible says, i will set you free, you'll be free indeed. Free from what? Sin. sin. Free from death. Free from the bondage that Satan has gotten us into from the beginning of time. We were in bondage to Satan. We were in bondage to sin. And Christ came along and says, the end of it. Come to me. Give me all your cares. Give me your burden. And I will set you free from that bondage. And you will be my servants and I will be your God. You will be my children and I will be your God. And what is a bond servant? The Jews, after every seven years, had to let their servants go, didn't they? And then those who didn't want to leave, they stayed. And they were called bond servants because... Their masters treated them very good. And they said, "Out on my own, I'm not going to get treated any better than I am with this master. And that's what the bond servant is. is we have a master, Jesus Christ, our Lord, our King, our Savior. And I want to serve him as a bond servant because nobody can treat me any better. Nobody can give me everlasting life. Nobody can give me anything that stands up to Jesus Christ. And so the bond servants we are. Are we doing the same? As I close here, are we preaching the gospel? Are we giving the brokenhearted hope through Christ? Are we setting the captives free from the bondage of sin by giving the message of salvation to the lost world? Are we giving sight to the blind by exposing their blindness? Are we presenting the word of God through Christ? Are we uplifting the oppressed by giving them the hope they need to make it through the day? Like a Christ-like life means that we need to be the example that Christ portrayed, expressing the fruits of the Spirit in a Spirit-filled life. What are the fruits of the Spirit? Galatians 5, through 23. Spirit of love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? Are we the example of Jesus Christ in displaying these fruits of the Spirit? That's where people should look upon us and say, I want his joy. I want his kindness. I want his faithfulness. And they should look at us and say, how did you get that? I look at Charlie every week, all he does is smile. He makes me laugh every time I see him. (laughs) But I know where his laugh comes from. So that's from Jesus Christ. He's given him a kind heart. And so I leave it with you. We need to show the fruits of the Spirit in our lives. That is to show us the people around us, the lost world that there is a Jesus Christ who saved me from damnation, who I accepted as my Lord and my Savior and my King, and that thou, they receive those fruits also. Let's pray this word. Father, I thank you for this time together. I ask, Lord, that you forgive us our sins and we come to you with humble hearts, grateful for all that you have done for us. I ask that you, your fruits, your fruits of the Spirit would show throughout our lives to a lost world that there is a God, a God who loves them and cares for them and who died for them. And as we go out this week, Lord, I ask that you send somebody who was lost to talk to us and that we'd be able to feed them the message that was given to us of salvation, that message of repentance, the message of confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord, that message that I believe from Genesis to Revelation, that this word is an inerrant word of God inspired by the Holy Spirit given to men, put down for us, as a history, and as a knowledge of a way that we should live our lives. And I believe that the Messiah who came in the Old Testament, who looked forward to coming in the Old Testament, who came in the New Testament, and who is to come in Revelations and Daniel and Ezekiel. I give you all the praise and honor that you deserve. I glorify your name. In my King's name, Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Thank you.